Crossroad International Church podcast. We're so glad you joined us. It is our prayer that God will use this message to bring comfort to those who are hurting, give hope to those who find themselves in what seems to be a hopeless situation, and to encourage the one who is struggling through a difficult season of life. For more sermon audio, resources, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit CICKuwait.com. We'd love to hear from you. if you would, to James chapter 1, and through the message today, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 20, and I'll go to them, I'll read them as we get to them, they're in your bulletin, but we are starting today a six or seven week uh, series on the book of James, it started out, it was going to be four weeks, and then we moved it to six weeks, and now we've moved it to seven weeks, so we may keep extending it, we don't know, so We'll go this month, then we'll break and do Easter, and then in May we'll pick back up and go into possibly the end of May, beginning of June. Just want to give you to start off a little bit of an introduction uh, on the book of James. Today I'm going to be doing the first section, and the book of James we have entitled it Pressure Points a study through the book of James, and I'm going to be talking today about the pressures of trials. How many of you know all of us go through them from time to time? But the author of the book of James, it says right in the very beginning that it is James, and it is assumed that this is James, the brother of Jesus. He is also was the leader of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. James was one of several brothers of Jesus, and we tend to think, most biblical scholars, that James was the oldest brother of Jesus, because in Matthew 13, 55, when Jesus' brothers are listed, James is the first one. And normally, the oldest son would be, uh, or the oldest brother would be given that name, so... Jesus was born, then some years later or sometime later, we don't know how long, James and then Jude, and then he also had some sisters. It's interesting to note that in John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, that James doesn't agree with anything Jesus is doing. In fact, he even challenges him, and he under, misunderstood the mission of Jesus. But then later, James becomes a very prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem. On Paul, when his first visit to Jerusalem after being saved, he goes to James. And then in the end of the book of Acts, Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, he goes back and he visits James. So we want to look now at this first chapter starting at verse 2 and read verse 2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall in to various trials. Trials and joy are part of God's plan. This book of James is not a very popular book in the church today. Because James is a very practical book. Its message is, 
walk the talk. And another message in the book of James is this. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Show me you're a Christian. Two of my kids live in the state of Missouri in the U.S., and it is known as the show-me state. That's their motto, show-me. And that's kind of what James is. Maybe he was from Missouri. I don't know. But his whole thing is, show me. Don't tell me you're a biblical scholar. Show me. Don't tell me you're super spiritual. Show me. And that's one of the themes of this book. And we understand at the very beginning that trials and joy are part of God's plan. And we are given this promise. How many of you like promises in the Bible? Well, I'm giving you four right here. Four precious promises from the Word of God. Jesus said in John 16, 33, In the world you will have trials. How many of you want to reach up and grab that promise? Paul said in Romans 8, 17, Joint heirs with Christ, if indeed you suffer with him. Okay, reach up and grab that promise, okay? James, we just read it. He doesn't say if you have trials. He says when you have trials. And then Peter told us in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. Now, those are promises that we will have trials. I only read the first half of each of those scriptures. The second half of those scriptures, Jesus said in John 16, 33, Yeah, you will have trials in the world, but be of good cheer. See, there is a promise of a trial and an encouragement of joy. Paul says you will be glorified with him in Romans 8, 17. James says count it all joy. And Peter says rejoice. Charles Stanley said this, Joy is not the absence of suffering. Joy is the presence of God in our suffering. Think about that. Joy is not the absence of trials or suffering, but joy is the presence of God in the midst of everything that I go through. Now, in the church today, there are basically two extreme views of trials and suffering. There is one view over on this extreme side that says all of the Christian life, you should be suffering, you should have trials, you should have temptation. It's bad, bad, bad. And then over on this side, the extreme is if you're a Christian and you have faith, there should never be a trial, there should never be suffering, nothing should ever go bad. 
I've even heard people say that Paul must not have had faith because look at everything he went through. If he really had faith, he wouldn't have gone through those things. But the reality is, in this Christian life, we are promised four times that we will have trials and suffering and temptations. We don't always understand why, but they do come. But the other side of that coin is in the midst of all of those, you can walk in joy and you can rejoice. We're not joyful because of the trial. We're joyful in the trial because we have the presence of God with us. And as I was studying for this, I um, have about 10 pages of notes. So if you want the full outline, I'm not preaching all of that today. You can go online later this week and there will be about six, seven, eight pages of notes of everything I found preparing for this message. But they said that a lot of people going through the middle of a trial or a test, they wonder, God, why are you so quiet? And then I got to thinking, I'm a teacher. I teach Bible college courses. And what do I do when my students are taking a test? Am I up talking and teaching? No, I'm quiet so they can concentrate on the test to remember everything they've been taught that's going to help them pass the test. Amen? Let me ask you, how many of you have had a trial maybe two or three years ago? You went through something and there was some trial or temptation that you went through. But see, when, when we go through a trial... And we get through it on the other side and we look back, we understand that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was when I was in the middle of it. And the same God that helped us through then is the same God that will help us through now and is the same God that will help us through in the future. Now this truth that we understand that trials and joy is part of the Christian life, it helps us to endure these trials. We understand that God is sovereign over all the trials. But see, the sovereignty of God doesn't mean I sit back and do nothing. Inshallah doesn't work that way. See, I could trust in the sovereignty of God and I could be sitting in the middle of the road and a big truck be coming right at me and, oh, it's, I'm in the sovereignty of God. He'll either swoosh me out of the way or he'll make the truck stop. And that's the way some Christians look at the sovereignty of God. That God does everything and they don't have to do anything. But I'll guarantee you, if I do nothing, I'm going to get squashed on the road. So the sovereignty of God, yes, he is in control, but he gives me the ability to think. 
He gives me the ability to act so when I see that truck coming, I can get up and get out of the way. When we're in the midst of trials, when we're in the midst of testings, there are some things that we need to do. And we'll get into those later. And by telling us that the trials are coming, the Lord is giving us grace and is preparing us ahead of time so that when it comes, we're not freaked out and we don't start talking all kinds of weird stuff, but we are prepared. How many parents do I have here? Let me see your hands. Okay. Ladies, when you became pregnant... Did you do any reading or any studying or try to get any information about what it was going to be like to be pregnant, to have that baby and raise that baby when you came home? Let me see if you did that. Okay. How many guys did it? Okay, a couple of us. <laughs> okay, ladies, that was a real good time to put a hard elbow right in the ribs. Well, let me give you some advice. We've got a church full of kids. I hope you're still reading. I hope you're still studying to find out what it's like to have adolescence, what it's like to have teens. We even did some studying. What is it like to have the empty nest where there are no more kids? And you that are just starting with the little ones, and sometimes you're pulling your hair out or you've seriously wanted to take Dell's advice and duct tape them to the wall? Let me give you some good news. One of these days, they're all going to be gone. And life is still wonderful. Because then you get grandbabies. And it's even better. Amen? Can I hear an amen from all the grandparents? Why did I spend all of that time about kids? I've got three. Our oldest is 39, our daughter's 37, and our baby is 33. Over the last 39 years, we have had some trials and some testings and some temptation with children. Any parents say amen? <laughs> but because of the reading and the studying and the different things that we did to prepare ourselves, it wasn't as hard as it could have been if we were totally unprepared. I want to encourage you. God has some words in this book that will help us in times of trial and temptation and suffering if we will just study it then he will bring it back to our remembrance. See, because we know that trials and joy are part of the Christian life, we understand that God knows what we're going through. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Verses 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials bring spiritual growth. 
Trials or testing produce fruit in my life. The word testing means to show the worth of something. According to this scripture, when God is testing us, it is showing the worth of our faith. How is your faith? Is your faith able to stand? As a teacher, one of my favorite things is to give tests. I love giving tests. My students don't like it, but I love it. And see, I look at testing different than a lot of people because I look at testing as testing my ability as a teacher, not necessarily the student's ability as a learner. It's a big difference in the way you look at it. Because I give exams or give testings to my students when I know I have taught them and prepared them that I'm confident enough that they have the ability to pass that test. And that's the way God is. We'll learn a little bit later that God never allows anything to come that we're not ready for. The testings bring spiritual growth. It positively, we are complete, or positionally, we are complete in Jesus right now. And that's in Colossians 2, 9 through 10. But we have to work that out. Paul and several other people throughout the New Testament were praying for believers to be complete or to be made complete. But positionally right now, we are complete in Christ. Just as Dell mentioned a few weeks ago, positionally we are seated right now in heavenly places with Christ. And then as we talked about last week, one of the trials we have is living down here with people. I don't know if you remember the saying from last week. Living above with the saints I love, that will be grace and glory. But living below with the saints I know, that's a different story. Think about that. Those are some trials that we have to come up with. And even though we are positionally complete in Christ right now, we have to walk this out day by day. That is part of what is called our sanctification, our being made into the image of Christ. And then the last thing, trials are not an end in themselves. God is not some masochists that's sitting in heaven just going okay let's see what they can endure today and just sending all of these trials our way god does not allow trials to come just so we can endure trials the purpose is to make us more like jesus now we have a choice to make when we're going through something do we learn the lesson or do we do like the children of Israel and we walk around this mountain out in the desert and don't learn the lesson and then God gives it to us again? See, the whole book of James we will find over this series, the entire theme of the book of James is how to walk as a mature believer in the now and now. 
how to really love the saints we know down here, how to get along with them, how to share the good news with them, and how we can grow in Christ. And then verse 5 through 8 says that, or shows us that trials should lead us to prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he shall receive anything of the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. This scripture is simply saying if you don't understand what's happening, what you're going through, first thing you need to do, ask God. Don't complain, don't gossip, don't go to your neighbor, don't go to somebody else. Go first to God because if you don't have wisdom, understanding what's happening, ask God. Amen? Ask in faith without doubting. Doubt means to express a hesitation and it's a balance between faith and unbelief. Do I? Don't I? Have any of you ever done this when you're trying to make a decision? That's called doubt. You don't know which way to go. We are warned against being double-minded. Double-minded is peculiar. It's only used here in the book of James in this verse and also in verse 4-8. And it means to be undecided. The literal translation is to be double-spirited or double-souled more accurately. One soul directed toward God and one soul directed toward something else. Remember, Paul talked about this. The flesh fights with the spirit. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, sometimes I do. Because there is this battle. When we are double-minded, we do not rely on God. And our confidence is not completely in God. So we need to make sure that we are grounded in His Word, grounded in prayer, go to God, ask Him, spend time in His presence so that we rely completely on Him and we have complete confidence that God only has our best interest at heart. God is too wise to make a mistake, too powerful to fail, and He loves us too much to hurt us. And then in verses 9 through 11, he gives a perspective of the rich and the poor during trials. And the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers with the grass, 
its flowers fail, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, The holy, humble temper of a Christian, both in advancement and debasement, is described. And both the poor and the rich are directed on what ground to build their joy and their comfort. And then Calvin said this about this passage. Just as Paul tells the slaves that you have been made free in Christ, and he tells those that are free and born free, you are slaves of Christ. Here he's telling the poor and the rich, you who are poor, you're rich in Christ, and you who are rich, you are poor in Christ. Same type of situation. The reality is, the main idea is regardless of our standing in society, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, only faith in God will bring us through the trial and allow us to walk in the joy of the Lord. And that's what these scriptures are basically saying. If we have nothing, or if we have everything, only faith in God will get us through. Jesus must be at the center. Amen? We only rely on Jesus. Verse 12 says that we are blessed when we endure trials. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. When we endure, when we press through, when we don't give up, we will receive the crown of life. I want to look real quickly at 1 Corinthians 10.13. There are five promises in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that we can see. And they talk about trials. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Those five promises, you are not the only one. Don't think you're so special that nobody else has ever gone through what you're going through. No, the temptation, the trial we're going through is common to everybody. And then God is faithful. God is there with you in every situation. God knows your limits. You don't give a 10th grade math exam to a 1st grade math student, hopefully. Understand? We know the limits of our students. God knows our limits. And God will always give us a way of escape. And God has confidence that we can bear it. See, that's one of the reasons that you can 
walk in joy and you can rejoice in the midst of trials and temptations because God has enough confidence in your ability to go through it that he allows it to come. So if God has enough confidence in me to allow this trial to come, then I need to have confidence in my walk with God that it's going to be okay. I'm going to make it through this. Amen? We serve a great, great God. And then verse 13 through 16, it says that we don't play the blame game in trials. Don't play the blame game. We are tempted to shift the blame for our temptations. You remember the book of Genesis chapter 3? God comes down and he nails Adam because of his sin. Doesn't talk to Eve, doesn't talk to the serpent. God comes down and he straight at Adam and God nails him. What have you done? Who told you? And what's Adam's first response? Oh, the woman you gave me gave me this fruit. If you hadn't created her and if you hadn't given to her to me, then this would have never happened. So it's her fault for giving me the fruit, but mainly, God, it's your fault because you created her and gave her to me. And then what does Eve do? Eve goes, oh, no, the serpent deceived me. Come on, now, what do we do when we get in trouble? But what we need to do is we need to just repent and say, yep, I did it. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 says, Foolishness twists our ways, and our heart turns against God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, what did Jesus say our temptation was? I'm trying to get up to Dell because he's, I think he's got a speck in his eye. But I've got this big two by four sticking out of my eye so far that I can't even get close enough to him to, to get the speck out of his eye. Come on now. I'm just going to be honest with you. I deal with this a lot. My wife will say something to me and I want to argue that that's not right. Even when I know she's right. Because I like to be right. Any other men in the room like that? <laughs> and maybe some ladies are the same way. I've got friends that never lose an argument. I mean, even if they know they're wrong, they're going to argue till they win. And many times we try to do that with God. We try to blame others or blame God. But see, God is never the source of our temptation according to this scripture. God cannot be tempted and he does not tempt us with evil. Now God does allow the trials to come into our life, but he doesn't tempt us to do anything 
that was evil. When we feel that pull towards sin, we are never allowed to say, but God, you made me that way. Nor can we say, the devil made me do it. Because this scripture says temptation comes from our own desire. Temptation comes from within me. I look in the mirror every morning and I see the one that made me do what I do. See, I could blame my wife for cooking too good is why I was overweight. If she just didn't cook so good, I wouldn't eat so much. Well, it's not her fault. My problem is I love to eat. Anybody else just like to eat? I mean, I love it. And being a preacher kind of goes along with it. Because a lot of people like to take you out to eat after service. And I love to, I don't want to disappoint anybody, Dell. Huh? Don't, don't, oh, okay. Leanna says, don't complain about that, Pastor. Okay. But no. I started losing weight when I realized the problem was me. And I have a simple diet. It's probably the simplest diet you'll ever hear. Shut your mouth. Think about it. And it's worked. But we need to make sure that we do not blame others. Temptation is tailored to our own desires. It's unique to every person. One man may be tempted to do something and another person it doesn't tempt them at all. The word drawn away or enticed in these scriptures here talks about these are hunting and fishing metaphors. See, Satan knows what bait to use to get me to bite the hook. I don't know if any of you are fishermen, but depending on the type of fish you're trying to catch, you use different bait. Or for hunting, he knows the type of bait to put that will lure you to his trap. So we have to know ourselves enough and ask God when we don't know to show us so that we are not overcome by these temptations. And then once a temptation is acted upon, it becomes death. What begins as a desire turns in to sin. And then when we allow that sin to grow and we nurture that sin and we don't repent of it, then that sin brings forth death. James is urging his readers not to give in to temptation because it leads to death. But praise God, he is changing 
our nature. Verse 17 and 18 talks about how that God changes our nature. The source of our problems is the old man, the old nature. My wife and I have told this story before. We used to live across the fence from a cemetery. And none of our neighbors ever bothered us. They didn't have loud parties at night. They didn't throw trash over the fence. We never had one complaint about our neighbors. We had wonderful neighbors because they were all dead. You understand? Let me ask you, are you dead? Have you died with Christ and be res resurrected into newness of life? When we had our party, we had a baptism. Two young people um, followed the Lord in baptism, which was a symbol that they died with Christ and they were raised again with Him in resurrection power. But here's what happens with most of us as Christians. We bury the old man for a little while. And then we go dig him up and we carry him around with us. No, the old man has been buried with Christ. We need to allow God to change our nature to where we live in newness of life. God is in the business of changing our nature. Every good gift comes from God. God doesn't give us bad things. And then the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, says these are some qualities that are needed in trials. Listen to this. Be swift to hear. Slow to speak and slow to wrath. We need to be quick to hear the word of God, hear the good advice of other believers, but slow to speak, slow to complain, slow to bring, oh God, why me, type statements. Because see, wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. And then I want to close with asking you a couple of questions. What is our response to trials and temptation and suffering? First thing we need to understand is it reveals something about our heart. My reaction, do I get negative, defensive, or does it draw me closer to God? When God allows a trial or something like this to come into my life, do I distance myself from God or do I draw closer to the Lord? Do we trust in the goodness of God? He will never let anything come to us, but He will work everything out somehow to the good. Now, everything may not be good, but He can work it for good. Is our faith one that is strong enough to endure the heat of the trial 
or the temptation. Let me ask you today, if you are facing a trial right now, do you know that God is inviting you to trust in His goodness? A trial is an invitation to trust in the goodness of God. Now some of us here are going through trials and situations right now, but some of us are not. If you are not going through a trial right now, that is an invitation to get into this book and to get a firm theology to become strong enough to make sure that you can endure the trial. If you're not going through it, prepare. Then, don't be surprised when God puts your theology to the test. Amen. Count it all joy when trials come your way. I found a picture I was going to put up here, but it, it wasn't exactly right. It was three guys jumping up, clicking their heels. Now, I don't think that's exactly what God wants us to do when trials come, but he does want us to walk in the joy of the Lord. Amen. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We can't get through it on our own. One of the greatest witnesses of a Christian is when you're going through a trial and you still have joy. People go, how can you have joy going through what you're going through? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just come to you right now and we thank you for this time and just ask for your blessings upon your people. And Father, we ask that you would just be with us once again, that you would lead us and that you would guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen.